Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and also making stuff. So what have you been up to this week or recently? Um, so I bought a pattern from Ravelry that I cannot remember the name of the designer, but I will tweet a link to it. But it's called Embrace Octopus. And it's like this proper old timey octopus on a jumper, and like I, the tentacles go around the body and around the arms and stuff. I know that pattern. I've been like lusting after it for like six years. I am so excited for you to make this. I'm also very excited. It's absolutely glorious. Also, um, I've forgotten her name, but the um, the. One of the teachers in our apartment for archaeology, um, she had made it. She was the the one who did the um, um, GIS stuff. Um, oh, I didn't do that one. Okay, I can't remember her name, but um, yeah, archaeology professor with big octopus jumper. It was great. Um, yeah, that was exciting. Have you started it? I have. I'm a about a third of the way through the torso. It's I can't remember the name of the thing. I'm just not good at words today. The thing where you like attach the sleeves to the body while you're knitting the yoke. Okay. So I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. It's nice. like the tentacles are developing. Yeah, you're getting into the tentacles. Yeah, it's I haven't done colour work for a while. It's mm. quite fun getting back into it. <laughs> I am gonna need to see a picture of that. I think I put I put a picture of it in the um Patreon Discord. Oh, okay. I need to check that. That's patreon.com slash bread and thread. <laughs> <laughs> so what what have you been working on? Um I made a passion fruit and dark chocolate tart. Mm. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's quite possibly the fanciest dessert I have ever made. Um, so definitely yeah, the I just, definitely. Oh yeah, this one is is smooth and sensual. I had this like whole day off to myself, and I was like, I'm gonna make a very fancy thing, and I hadn't baked in a while, so it was like a. I got the recipe out of um, Good Food magazine, which, by the way, you can get free through your library if you live in the UK, and. Um, it's got like a, a chocolate pastry base with like cocoa powder in and then a passion fruit curd and then a chocolate ganache on top. It's like, it's like a mouth explosion. It's, it was good. It's pretty, you don't want a big slice. It's pretty rich. <laughs> but it's the first time I've ever made ganache as well. And it kind of worked out. Um, it was a bit, I don't know how it's supposed to be, but it was quite um, dense after being in the fridge for a while. Well, that, that's fairly normal with a dark, a dark ganache. Okay. If, the, if there's more cocoa in it, it gets like thicker and denser. Like, okay. you, you just want to put in more cream or use uh, less cocoa chocolate if you want it thinner. I see. I might give that a go. Are you, what's... Right. How ganache made and failed many ganaches. <laughs> but I'm good at them now. I made a white chocolate ganache and everything. Ooh, is that is that harder? 
I guess it harder. There's technically no cocoa in white chocolate, right? Yeah, it's it's it is not chocolate. <laughs> Which is don't hate that. Why it's a lot harder to work with white chocolate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm white, proud of white chocolate but... ganache with like blueberries is very Ooh. good. That sounds good. I was thinking. Um, I mean, passion fruit is quite you know quite fancy and exotic for me, <laughs> and it was it was really really nice. Um, but it was that kind of tangy flavor with the sweetness of the chocolate that was really good so i was thinking you could probably make that a gooseberry curd and it would have the same like kind of effect oh that's an idea i might give that a go my parents have a gooseberry bush i might make one of those next year yes so yeah that's that is the hats amazing so this is one of our book episodes i believe uh it is indeed and i'm going a bit left field for this one because it's not a cookbook i hope that's okay i mean it's bread and thread it's not just bread (laughs) well there is a lot of thread involved in this Um, (laughs) so i'm going to be talking about um therese de dillmont's encyclopedia of needlework first published in 1886 and an encyclopedia Oh yeah, and it really is. Honestly, like there is there is a lot in this book, um, and it is it deserves its fame. So, I actually first saw this book in a really old secondhand bookshop, um, and it looked like I was interested in needlework at the time. So I had a look, but it just kind of seemed like you know, really old and weird to me at the time. Um, But now that I'm a bit more interested in, like, historical methods of doing things, I'm like, damn, I wish I'd bought that. Um, But don't worry, because it is quite... It was very popular in its day, um, and there's a lot of them floating around, so I don't think it would be too difficult to get your hands on one if you wanted one. Um, And also... As I discovered when I was looking looking up about this book, um, there is a copy on Project Gutenberg available for free. Ooh. So if you are at all interested in anything that I, I talk about in this book, then you, you can just go and find it and have a read for yourself. And there's all of, all of the um, images are reproduced as well. It's, it's like is really good and i think it's one of the original editions because as we will find out um there were many many editions of this book going right up into the mid-20th century that recent yeah um yeah it far outlived its author um because it was just so comprehensive and it it really hit at the right moment as well because when this was published in the late 19th century um there was like a real a real fashion for decorative needlework. Um, I guess kind of similar to how there's a revival of craft and that kind of thing today. Um, But at this time period, there was just so much more availability of like different kinds of threads, different colors, like different materials than there had been before. Um, Plus, a lot of people had more leisure time than they used to. So it was um, 
needlework as a hobby was was really really popular um at the time we're and talking, also we're talking like the back end of the arts and crafts movement right yeah yeah that's kind of 18 1870s 80s right um, like started 1860s and then went on for a little bit okay cool um yeah so that that plus the infamous victorian fashion for decorating literally everything in your house somehow <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> meant that this this was a really popular book and um although there were a lot of other kind of competitors to it at the time it stood out for various reasons so Therese de Dilmont uh, was an Austrian writer. She was born in the town of Wiener Neustadt in 1846, which is just south of Vienna. Um, and she was the daughter of a professor of architecture at the military academy there. And her mother had the fantastic name of Franziska Schwendenfein. That's totally that irrelevant. Good. It, it's not relevant to anything. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> um, because it's excellent. So um, she was actually educated as a governess and a teacher in Vienna. And as part of this education, she studied needlework and got really, really interested in it. Um, she may have attended the needlework school that was founded by Empress Maria Theresa. Um, I think in the 18th century. Um, and certainly she was a close friend of the director of the school uh, for most of her life. So she ran an embroidery shop in Vienna for a while with her sister, um, selling just embroidery materials, designs, patterns, things like that. Um, but it was after she started a partnership with the company DMC that her career really took off. Um, and this is this is quite inter an interesting story uh, because she was like a real career woman for the time. Um, so she had moved to Switzerland in 1884 um, and she, uh, she, I think she had her own embroidery school there. Um, but she also started working for the company DMC, um, which stands for Dolphus Neg A Company. Hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> but better known as DMC, which is still in business today and is very, very well known as probably the most famous maker of cotton embroidery threads. Yeah, I um, think. I think my embroidery starter set was DMC. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. It's um, they're they're still going strong. Um, they're, in fact, they're doing quite well at the moment. I think because of the resurgence of craft and stuff. Um, that and everyone's stuck inside with nothing else to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one reason. <laughs> um, but they still do um, make make their own patterns and things and. Um, you know they don't they don't just sell um the materials they also um you know right from the start were sort of driving sales by 
doing patterns and designs and techniques. And so uh, DMC published her book, The Encyclopedia of Needlework. Um, and they were based in Alsace, um, which interestingly is in Germany at this time, um, because it didn't become part of France until after the First World War. Yeah, that's that's a whole geopolitical. It it is, and I'm um... not going <laughs> to get into that. But <laughs> it was a a French German company, <laughs> I guess, at the time. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm I'm not like that well read on Alsatian history so <laughs> um but... know about the dog <laughs> no I know nothing I know less about the dog I know more <laughs> about the Alsatian textile industry than I do about the dogs those <laughs> <goes> wolf <laughs> does it though yes okay I've I've known several <laughs> known them well <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she uh, she had a contract with DMC to write for them, and she published um, over a hundred books or uh, leaflets were attributed to either her or her niece, who had the same name, and I'll touch on that later. Um, but the most famous is the Encyclopedia of Needlework, published in 1886. Um, and we're going to have a little flick through of it um, in just a moment. Um, but I, I, I just do want to talk about um, kind of how this partnership ended, because it's quite interesting. Uh, so the book was really, really popular. It's, it had many reprints. It was translated into 17 languages. And um, it's kind of unclear, this next bit, because there were there was a chain of embroidery like needlework shops opened under her name in Vienna, Paris, Berlin and London. Um, some some things, some biographies that I've looked at um, kind of say that they were her shops uh, but then other information I found says they were opened by DMC under her name but she does seem to have been quite involved in the running of them either way because she was traveling between them. So it's almost um, a franchise. Yeah. Um, at this point, her name was basically a brand. Uh, and in fact, when she got married uh, in 1889, DMC really did not approve. <laughs> they were quite put out because she changed her name. Um, and the name was the brand. So they, yeah, they were not happy about this. And in fact, um, Unfortunately, she died uh, only a few months later, and her niece, who had the same name, took over the job. But in the niece's contract, it was there was a, a clause that said she wasn't allowed to get married or change her name because the name was brand. It's like idols. Yeah, I was thinking embroidery that. <laughs> idols. <laughs> the OG embroidery idol. It's amazing. I mean, it's awful, but it's amazing. <laughs> I know, like, in terms of, like, you know, um, rights and working conditions, it's not great. But <laughs> just, it kind of illustrates the extent to which she was well-known at the time. I mean, this book was all over the place, and that's why you can, it's it's quite easy to pick it up in second-hand shops and stuff. Um, 
so the book itself um I think the edition that's on Gutenberg is either the additional original one or an early one um because of the prices so the English edition cost three shillings which is not massively expensive I mean probably the people who are going to be most interested in fancy work are like the middle slash upper classes um who probably the middle classes um who are gonna have uh like a middle class lady probably has a lot more leisure time um than yeah, someone the classes would probably employ a middle class lady to do it for them <laughs> either buy buy them or have somebody make them for them although it was also a popular hobby among the upper classes um so like i i would say like they would probably do it for for hobby purposes as well um whereas a middle class lady might be looking to do it uh to look fancier but didn't have the money to you know pay for the the real professional stuff um but having said that um it wasn't like totally out of reach. Like it's something the working class women could have afforded, maybe not on a whim, um, but given the average age, average age, <laughs> the average wage um, at that time for a working class man um, was about forty six pounds a year. Um, this is in sort of regular employment. Uh, which, according to my calculations, is about 16 shillings a week, maybe, depending on what time of year it is. So you um, could maybe get, get his wife one as a birthday present or something. Yeah, so it's it's something that might be considered a worthwhile investment um, for a working class woman, because it does contain information on plain sewing as well, and mending, and um, you know all sorts of things you can do to make your clothes look a little bit more fancy when you've got the time. So that's another reason that um, she became so well known because like a lot of people had this book. And in fact, it was reprinted after her death, it was still reprinted and added to. And um, in the 20th century, there were even iron-on transfers that were added to the book, which is really wow. interesting. <laughs> I didn't know those were that old. Uh yeah, I mean I don't I don't know like when they first became a thing. Um but the the book went on long enough that they were, I guess. So um so it was still popular up until then. I imagine they would have taken out some of the more Victorianish things. Um and on the the title page is a little illustration of an angel with the motto, um, you know, Victorians and their mottos. Um, the motto is, I, I don't know Latin, so I don't know if this is right, but it's ten, tenui philo magnum pexiter opus, which apparently means from one fine thread, a work of art is born. I like that. Yeah. I do like that. It's, this, it's the same kind of vein as um, Mighty Oaks from Little Acorns Grow. <laughs> so it's an extremely comprehensive book. Um, 
and that kind of sets it apart from some of its competitors at the time because they would be especially the ones published in English would be focusing more on kind of English styles of embroidery whereas this included yeah um, and this included a lot of continental styles and also um, segments on Chinese embroidery tambour work from India um, Turkish embroidery so like a lot of different styles and things uh, from all over the world I mean just looking at the chapters I can see like Armenian lace Venetian lace Brussels lace tambour work Smyrna stitch Turkish stitch yeah <laughs> yeah that is incredibly thorough there's a lot a lot of things a lot of things I don't know whether or not these were you know quote unquote authentic um, like embroidery instructions but they certainly represent um, the the way that certain styles became popular in different cultures and um, you know people liked the idea of this thing and then um, you know changed it a little bit to fit in with what they were doing and uh, it represents an interest in um, different kinds of techniques. From Are you accusing Therese of appropriation? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying that what is called Chinese embroidery in a Victorian needlework manual probably doesn't represent like all of Chinese embroidery ever. Um, but probably not. Definitely represents a an interest in um, in people who were doing this embroidery in the West at the time in that kind of style. Um, so yeah. Um, let's take a look at this book. It starts with the instructions for plain sewing, and she has some comments to make on the the place of hand sewing in the age of the sewing machine, which are quite interesting. So the sewing machine is is going good at this time, but not everybody has one. Um, but it is starting to become maybe not common, but it's starting to become not uncommon to have one in the home. Um, and so she says, many on opening the Encyclopedia of Needlework will be disposed to exclaim as they read the heading of this first section, what is the use of describing all the old well-known stitches when machines have so nearly superseded the slower process of hand sewing? To this, our reply is that of all kinds of needlework, Plain sewing needs to be most thoroughly learned as being the foundation of all. Those who are able to employ others to work for them should at least know how to distinguish good work from bad, and those who are in less fortunate circumstances have to be taught how to work for themselves. I mean, she's got a point. I mean, she has indeed. Um, like, you've like, got to get the basics down. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, even today, when we've got all sorts of technologies, we still use hand sewing for the things like finishing techniques and things that you just can't get a machine to do. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you there, Therese. <laughs> so she has 
a bunch of sections for, you know, things like backstitch, um, hemming, seams, all the basic stuff. Um, but as this book is more aimed at the hobby market, there is a lot on various kinds of fancy work. And it's not just um, sewing. Needlework at this time also encompassed crochet and knitting. So there's a section on crochet work. Um, there's a section on knitting, tapestry and linen embroidery, gold embroidery, white embroidery, uh, open work and cut work, netting, macrame tatting, Irish lace, which is a kind of needle lace, um, and also Irish crochet, which is really amazing. It's um. It's like a style of crochet with very, very fine thread where you they're like 3D motifs, like often flowers and leaves and things on a sort of net background. Um, and it looks incredible. Um, cool. I haven't heard of several of the things you listed there. I'm going to have to look at the Gutenberg version <laughs> of this. I know. I mean, I, I don't know them all. I don't really know what netting is. <laughs> There's a interestingly, there's a lot of instructions on how to make different kinds of lace, um, both insertion lace and edging lace, um, and collars and things. And I I think that's possibly because a lot of these kind of stuff stuff that these laces are intended for, like linens and um underwear and nightwear and stuff, um, was still often being made at home at this time. And the lace is a way that you can make it fancy, you know. And it's personalization as well, isn't it? You don't you don't want to to know that everyone else has the same stuff as you, especially if you're making it yourself. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And if you've got the time and it's your hobby and your other option is having, you know, boring plain underwear, then it's a bit of a no brainer, like <laughs> Um, someone with, uh, let's just say, substantial breasts. I have a lot of feelings about nice-looking underwear. <laughs> that is that is entirely fair. Um, so I, yeah, I I kind of really like this um, this DIY underwear kind of thing. Like it's quite. It's quite tempting. I just want to make a bunch of laces now and attach them to everything I own, which is very Victorian. Um, she also includes instructions in the back for washing lace, uh, washing, stiffening, ironing and pinning. And she makes an interesting distinction between ordinary lace and real lace, by which I think she means machine lace versus handmade lace. I'm guessing handmade is the real lace. Uh, yeah, I think so. The OG. <laughs> the, uh, the real deal. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, it is interesting that this comes at a time when, as well handwork is starting to be something that you do for pleasure rather than a ma machine made stuff is more available and cheaper so to save time it's 
it's just a lot easier. And so doing stuff like fancy stuff by hand is now a hobby pastime. Um, so uh, yeah, in, in pinning out the lace, um, she says that if it's machine made lace, you can just iron it. But if it's like real lace, then you've got to pin it out. I assume because it's more delicate. It feels odd to me that the machine made would be more delicate, but that might just be me being used to 21st century manufacturing. Oh yeah, sorry, this is the real lace is more delicate, apparently. Okay, that makes um, sense. But but yeah, I would I would think that's because the they didn't um have the kind of delicacy of machine work to work with the really fine threads at the time, maybe. Um I don't know. If you know about um 1880s machine lace, then <laughs> please do let me know. <laughs> we need to bring Kate back just to talk about lace. Yeah. I've gained a bit more of an appreciation for lace recently because I used to think it looked kind of fussy and grandma-y but um, not, not anymore um, I really have come around to it I, I think it, do, it does have its place hmm. but I think the problem is because when, when you think about lace you think about like doilies yeah. Or those weird like lampshades with lace around them for <laughs> for no good reason that just get really dusty. Yeah, um, and I suppose those are kind of relics of that Victorian decorate everything mania. Um, but there are um, so there are some photographs in this book of the crochet lace patterns, and they are absolutely beautiful. In particular, there is an incredible lace collar. Um, and it look it looks kind of like those really fancy seventeenth uh, century ones um, that are often in, like in paintings, like this really fancy white lace against the black puritanical type clothing. And it's yeah, it's it's just so beautiful. And I'm gonna have to put up some pictures. It oh yeah oh yeah, <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it, it does kind of make you see it in a different light. So there's also some really interesting methods um, for changing the patterns, for like transferring them and extending them or, um, or sizing them up or down. Um, so there, there's one here to transpose and repeat patterns by means of looking glasses. So, okay. yeah. Um, so this is when you're trying to adapt a pattern to the proportions of your table runner or your rug or your, you know, whatever you're making. Um, you use two unframed mirrors and put them at a sort of an angle to each other um, so that you reflect the pattern. Um, and then... So you can you can use this to, you know, make the pattern into a corner and see what you need to do or to sort of reflect a repeated pattern and, and see how it joins. Um, 
it's really it's really hard to describe this without like looking at the illustrations so um yeah um if you're interested in this please do give it a go um and and have a look in the practical directions chapter at the end of the book and the illustration is in there um but yeah it's it's really cool um so she often she also includes um let me see i've talked about crochet lace uh there's knitting oh so in the gold work there's another nice little quote so is that gold work as in with like gold thread yeah um so gold work is uh, uh it's a bunch of different materials so you use sort of gold thread um often it's raised so it's kind of like stump work where you like pad out the base and then stitch over it so it's like a little bit 3d um you could there is sort of goldish leather that you can use and various different materials um and it was quite popular in the 18th century as well um as she mentions so she says up to the present time dating from the end of the 18th century Gold embroidery has been almost exclusively confined to those who made it a profession. Amateurs have seldom attempted what, it was commonly supposed, required an apprenticeship of nine years to attain any proficiency in. Wow. Mmm. <laughs> nine years seems like a long time to just get good at something. Yeah. She I mean... doesn't say to become an expert. She says just to... <laughs> be good at it any proficiency <laughs> yeah to be able to embroider gold <laughs> takes nine years you heard it here yeah so i think this is also representative of that shift from professional to hobby amateur so like a lot of these professions these very specific professions are dying out at this stage um because they can't really compete in the the economy where mass manufactured goods are available like no one can afford their stuff anymore except for like super rich people and there's not a lot of that trade so um people who would specialize in these kinds of embroidery so like in the 18th century they would have embroidery workshops and some of them would specialize in a certain thing and um and they would just do that professionally um and so if you could afford that, you wouldn't like you wouldn't bother trying to do it yourself because it's like a professional thing. Um, but now no one can really I mean, they weren't making a lot of money in the first place, these people. <laughs> um, but you, people can't really afford to sustain this as a profession anymore. And so it kind of goes into the amateur like hobby kind of world. Um, as with a lot of other things. Um, so she says, but now when it is the fashion to decorate every kind of fancy article, whether of leather, plush or velvet with monograms and ingenious devices of all descriptions, the art of gold embroidery has revived and is being taken up and practiced with success, even by those to whom needlework is nothing more than an agreeable recreation. 
We trust that the following directions and illustrations will enable our readers to dispense with the five years training, which even now experts in the art consider necessary. So that's that's quite a humble brag there. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like a lot of things of that era just read like that, just because of how people wrote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this does seem to be... Just talking, talking around it, going, well, by the way. <laughs> I basically like the phrase, even by those to whom needlework is nothing more than an agreeable recreation. I almost want to, like, embroider the phrase, an agreeable recreation. <laughs> There's many things that you could call an agreeable recreation. I certainly I mean, find I don't think it counts as recreation, otherwise. <laughs> I certainly find needlework an agreeable recreation. But I mean I assume I assume she means like even if you're not a professional with my book you can do this. Oh yeah, I think I just prefer interpreting it as <laughs> if you like it you can do it. <laughs> yeah. That is kind of the point of this book. Um <laughs> and the instructions do seem quite the diagrams are pretty good like they're pretty pretty well laid out um and the instructions are i mean there's a little bit of that in the usual manner kind of stuff um where i think they're assuming at least some sewing competence um of course because your mother would teach you yeah so like it's Pretty much every every woman at the time knew how to sew, um, more or less. So, like she's she's kind of assuming a, a, like a familiarity with um, with a lot of the stitches, but then she does include a lot of like she starts at the beginning, um, so it kind of is aimed at the beginner as well. It's it's nice having that sort of span. I guess what is part of why it was popular for so long is just like, this is for everyone. Yeah. Um, and it's quite, it's, the tone of it is um, very teacherly, <laughs> which is unsurprising considering she was a teacher. But, um, so it's it's very teacherly, but, not condescending um it's kind of a you, you can do the thing just listen carefully kind of a tone i like that yeah <laughs> that's, that's the tone i want from an instructional text i mean it's clear this was written by someone who actually was really interested in every kind of needlework and uh, like knew what she was talking about which you would expect from someone whose profession was teaching needlework. But given that this was published by uh, the company DMC, it does push a lot of their products. <laughs> um, like all of the recommended materials are <laughs> DMC threads, yeah. <laughs> so that might be quite tricky if you're trying to follow these instructions because Obviously, a lot of these materials they don't make anymore, so you've got to try and figure out what the modern equivalent is. 
I mean, it's probably just a different DMC product. Yeah, you can probably find something that's a similar um, thickness or, or whatever you need, but um, it might might differ in material, like what it's made of. Mm. So yeah, she also includes um, embroidery patterns and things, um, designs, and a lot of ideas for things that you can do. It's just, it's, um, it's, it's a really good book. And just looking through it, I've found things that I want to make or techniques that I was like, oh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> so, like, it's still, I think it's really stood the test of time because if you were somebody who just wanted to learn how to sew for, like, mending stuff, your modern clothes, this would tell you how to do it. Um, like it shows you how to do darning and mending, how to sew on buttons, which is the same thing that you do today. Um, yeah, it's it's handy. <laughs> and it's it's not too like 19th century, you know, it's not indecipherable. So that was a little journey into Therese de Villemont's Encyclopedia of Needlework, which you can find on Project Gutenberg. I'll put a link on the Twitter and in the Discord if anyone's interested in that. Um, and please, if you if you get into this as much as we have and you try something out from it, let us know. Send us a picture. Definitely. Uh, so thank you for listening. Um, as I said, we have a Patreon if you want to help us host the show or help us get these sorts of books uh, it's patreon.com slash bread and thread you can also email us at bread and thread podcast at gmail.com if you have any ideas for things that we should talk about or you just want to send us a picture of your amazing crochet lace or if you don't want to email you can tweet us um, also just bread and thread And we'll talk to you next time.